Let us pray. Father, how grateful we are for your Son, Jesus Christ, who indeed has suffered the death we deserved and whose wounds have paid our ransom. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you here this morning. It's just been an uneventful, quiet weekend around All Saints Church in the diocese in the past few days. Um, now, we had our special electing synod for our new bishop here yesterday. And for those of you who don't know yet, um, the Reverend Christopher Warner, um, rector of Church of the Holy Cross in Sullivan's Island, South Carolina, was elected our new bishop on the second ballot yesterday with a very strong majority of both laity and clergy. And so we are very excited about that and grateful to God for um, all three candidates who allowed themselves to um, their names to stand. So be, please be praying for Bishop Chris and his wife, wife Catherine as they are now in the midst of a huge transition in life from South Carolina um, to Virginia. And they have three um, young adult children, 27, 24, and 23, that they're going to be leaving behind down that part of the country. Um, so please continue to keep them in your prayers. And I want to extend a, a special word of appreciation. I'm not going to name anyone because there were so many people that did so many things, but to all of you um, who worked so hard behind the scenes with various aspects of logistics and things that need to take place with planning and preparation and serving both Friday night and again yesterday for this um, special synod. Things went um, incredibly smooth and um, you all and the diocesan staff did a wonderful job of making that happen. So thank you all so very much. Oh, yes. Thank you, Margaret. I also want to thank the team from Epiphany and Herndon. Um, I, Chantilly, I still always want to say Herndon, but they're in Chantilly now, the church, um, for leading us in worship this morning. Again, thank you all so very much for, for being here. Well, we're continuing to look at stewardship today, so I'd invite you to take out your Bibles or devices with Scripture on them and turn to Luke chapter 12, our gospel reading this morning, and also either mark with your finger in your Bible or pull up a separate screen on your device um, with Malachi chapter 3, which we'll be looking at a little bit later, our, our Old Testament reading for this morning. Last Sunday, as we started talking about stewardship, we looked at Psalm 63 and then Matthew chapter 6, the words of Jesus that were our gospel reading. And in looking at these readings as well as 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 7 last week, we focused on what I called the essence of stewardship. The matters that really rest at the center, at the very core of being a faithful steward. As we noted last week, stewardship is not just about money or finances, but stewardship involves being faithful with all that God has entrusted to us. In other words, stewardship involves the totality of our lives and who God calls us to be as his people. And last Sunday, we boiled all of this down really to two essential questions. The first question coming from Psalm 63 what is our heart's desire? Or stated more simply, as I also framed it last week, what do you want? Or what do I want? 
Psalm 63, verse 2 begins with these words, My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs after you. And the question for each of us is, do we desire, do we want God and the priorities of his kingdom more than anything else? The second question, which is very closely related that we looked at last week from Matthew 6, is to whom or what are we surrendered? Are we truly and wholly trusting God or are we still in some measure clinging to, to and being controlled by the stuff and the things of this world? And we noted last week, and I'll mention this again a little bit later, Jesus' emphasis in Matthew 6 that we cannot serve two masters. You either love one and hate the other or hate the first and love the latter. Our loyalties, the loyalties and commitments of our heart cannot be divided. Today, I want to continue with this focus of trust and surrender, both in terms of how much we, we truly and wholly trust in God, but also with the realization that God has also given us a sacred trust of which we are called to be faithful stewards. Let me phrase that another way. We trust God. If we've placed our faith in Christ as Savior, we are trusting God. But as his people, new creations in Jesus Christ, God also entrusts us with blessings and provision, which he calls us to be faithful stewards of. And the rea reality is this, who we trust shapes our lives. Look at Luke 12, verses 32 through 34 with me, where Jesus says, fear not little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We need to understand, I should ask, do we understand that as God's people, as, you, as new creations in Christ, you and I are inheritors of an eternal kingdom. Do we understand that? The words of 1 Peter remind us of this truth where we read in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. But even more than this promised reality, Jesus' words here in Luke 12, 32, teach us that it is God's delight, that it is God's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. It is God's good pleasure to do this in the lives of his people. In other words, God takes delight for us to share in his eternal kingdom. What an incredible thought to ponder. In light of this reality, we should not be filled with fear based on the shifting sands and temporal uncertainties of this world around us. Rather, we have the assurance that we can fully and wholly trust God whose kingdom is everlasting, whose kingdom we are a part of. We can trust God for and with our salvation. We can trust him with our lives now. 
we can trust him with our lives for all of eternity. And we can trust him with everything that we have, everything that he has given us. Because we know that all of this, our salvation, the security of our lives now and in the future, all that we have comes from God who always, always, always has our best interest at heart. I read a story this week as I was looking for a good sermon illustration about free ride skiing, which I was not familiar with. Is anyone here, maybe some younger folks, familiar with free ride skiing? Well, free ride snowboarding or skiing is performed on natural, ungroomed terrain without a set course. And so you don't have the regimen of a course with, you know, like in slalom skiing or um, particular spots where you're going to navigate it a particular way. It's left up to the skier or the snowboarder to make that determination. And so um, there's a lot of variables. And CBS News um, this, this past March carried a story about a young um, free ride skier named Jacob Smith, 15 years old, who is legally blind. He has extreme tunnel vision and no depth perception on top of that. And what he does see is blurry. His visual acuity is 2,800. Four times the level of legal blindness. Think of the big E on the eye chart. He would need it blown up four times in order to see it from 20 feet away. That gives us a little bit of perspective. So how in the world does Jacob compete in free ride, ride skiing? Well, CBS News went on to tell how his family keeps him on course. On competition, Jay's, Jacob's little brother, Preston, patiently helps him hike to the top of the venue, venues which are so high that lifts won't take him there. And then his father, Nathan, helps him get down. Jacob has a two-way radio turned up in his pocket, and his dad is at the other end at the base, calmly guiding him down through the course. His father, Nathan, describes it this way. It's on me to make sure that I don't let him down. I have to guide him through narrower chutes and, not go, and to not go off a cliff. Jacob is not reckless. He knows his limitations. I think he has the ability to ski anything on the mountain, but he's not going to try to do it by himself. He wants to be with somebody whom he trusts. He won't ski with people he doesn't trust. When Jacob was asked how he trusted his father, he replied, I mean, I trust him enough to turn right when he tells me to. And I think that paints a picture of how we need to trust God, even as we move forward in life in uncharted territory, in terrain that we may not be familiar with. We need to trust God, our Father in heaven, enough to know that when he says turn right or left or keep moving straight, literally and figuratively, that we, that we obey, that we listen to him. We need to trust him knowing that he has our best interest at heart. And that raises the question for you and me, how are we doing with our level of trust in God? Are we daily and continually growing to trust him more so that we desire more and more his kingdom and his will above all else? It comes back to the question we asked last Sunday, which I framed again this morning. What do you want? What do I want? Catholic writer and Trappist monk Thomas Merton put it this way. 
It is not enough to do the will of God because his will is unavoidable, nor is it enough to will what he wills because we have to do it. We have to will his will because we love it. How are we doing with loving the will of God? Do we do God's will because we feel like we have to or because we love it and delight in it? Who or what are we really trusting to shape our lives? Because who or what we trust really does shape and mold us far more than we are willing to acknowledge or admit. In verse 34 of our gospel reading again, Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. When I was a kid, I did a lot of fishing and we had a neighbor that lived across the street who owned a, a tire shop in the area and he would bring home boxes of lead wheel weights and you know, the tire weights he used to balance, balance wheels with and give them to me. And I had a little electric ladle and sinker molds and I would make sinkers for fishing. Some of which I still have in my tackle box at home. They're, they're getting some years on them now. But as I made sinkers in those molds, I very quickly learned a couple things. One, you need to make sure the mold was hot too to, to really get good quality sinkers. So before I, I would pour the lead in the little openings in the top of the mold, I would take a, a little hand torch and heat up the metal in the mold itself on the outside to get the mold good and hot so that um, the lead didn't cool down too fast and you ended up with a sinker that was half formed in that mold. The other thing I learned was that it was very important before you um, dump the lead from the ladle, and we're talking about lead here, not silver or gold, but it has dross on top in the same way any molten metal does. It was really important to skim off some of that impurity, that dross on the top before you poured the lead from the ladle into the mold. Because if you let the impurities go in first or off the top and they got mixed in, what would happen there's this opening that necks down really small and the impurities would block the mold and you wouldn't get a sinker or they would go down into the mold if they were a little finer and block portions and you'd either end up with a, um, a misshapen or an incomplete sinker. That's what happens. I think that's a good picture figuratively of how we need to allow God to work in our lives. As he molds us in shape, as he needs to heat things up sometimes to, to push the dross to the surface so it can be cleared out, so those impurities can be skimmed off the top. Impurities and, and things that block the flow of all of his life into that mold so that we aren't misshapen or incomplete, but that we find ourselves molded and shaped more fully and perfectly into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. God does indeed heat us up at times. He removes the dross and he continues to mold and shape us into the image of his son. But I think it also raises the question, what impurities must we allow and invite him to remove that are perhaps still sticking to you and me, things that keep us from more fully desiring God and loving his will? In verse 33, it's abundantly clear that what we cling to or even what we allow to continue to cling to us will indeed mold and shape who we are and how much we do look or don't look like Jesus. 
Jesus' teachings and the entirety of Scripture, both the Old and the New Testament, repeatedly connect the will of God and trusting Him to money and earthly riches. And that is not coincidental. It cannot be dismissed and it cannot be made light of despite what some people want to do or say. Because the reality is how we view earthly riches shines a spotlight into the priorities of our hearts. Not just with money. Brother, how we view earthly riches is an indicator of how we approach and view all that God has entrusted to you and me. And where our true love and fidelity resides. Again, back to what Jesus said last week in our gospel reading. We cannot serve two masters. We cannot have this dichotomy as some people think they can. This is the part of my life that belongs to God or this is my, my Sunday morning life and this is the rest of me. That is not the way God's kingdom works. God calls us to yield and surrender all of ourselves to him. We will either serve him or we will serve something or someone else. What and who are we really and truly holding on to? And what priorities do people around us see demonstrated in our lives? Not just by what we say, talk can be cheap. But what do people around us, and not just on Sunday mornings, but people around us in our neighborhood, people around us at work, What do they see demonstrated in our lives? Not by what we say or even what some people may boast about, but how our lives are ordered and how we invest our time, our talent, and our treasure. All of those things, our time, the days of our lives, all the giftings and the skills that God has given us, and the treasury is blessed with money and other resources. How do we spend those things? How do we invest those things? Does the way we steward those things and all that we are reflect the heart and the will of God and his priorities? Or do those around us see how other things and other people are molding and shaping us perhaps even more than God? Whose shape are you and I being made into? Who we trust really does shape our lives, often far more, far more than we are willing to recognize. I want to turn it back up for a moment to our reading from Malachi chapter 3, our Old Testament reading this morning, and specifically talk about finances and tithing for a moment. Keep in mind that all we have talked about today and last Sunday. The question is, what is our heart's desire? What do we want? To whom or what are we surrendered? Who really trusts, who we, who, and excuse me, and remembering who we trust really does shape our lives in ways that are far more apparent than we realize. All of this really ties quite closely to these verses from Malachi chapter three. Listen to just two of the verses from our Old Testament reading. Malachi 3.8, the words of the Lord through the prophet Malachi. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? Is the answer. 
Malachi 3.10 says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If, see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. All of this ties together with turning more fully to God and desiring God more fully and above all else. How we order our finances really is like a giant thermometer which measures the spiritual temperature of our hearts. And when I say this, I'm thinking of those what are now old-fashioned thermometers, not the ones that, and some of you younger folks may only remember digital thermometers, but remember the thermometers with the little thin silver line in them, a mercury that went up and there was an arrow, what was a normal temperature usually on them. But to really read that thing, you had to kind of turn it sideways. All of a sudden that little narrow line got, you got on a certain angle, would get really wide. You can raise your hand and admit you remember those thermometers. It's okay. I think we still have one floating around the house. But the reality is to really gauge the temperature, the more you focus, the more you turn that thing and adjust it, you could hone in and the reality of things became much clearer. The same is true with us in our spiritual lives. As people look closely at us, as people really hone in and focus on us, and as God does, the reality of our spiritual heart temperature becomes abundantly clear. Now in this context in Malachi, he talks about giving to God, specifically giving the biblical tithe of 10%. And Malachi chapter three is one of the very few places in scripture where we read God saying, put me to the test, verse 10. It's much more common in scripture um, to read of distinct prohibitions of putting God to the test. So what is the difference here in Malachi chapter 3? What is the difference from those other circumstances? Well, the prohibitions of putting God to the test all involve testing God because his people were not trusting him or they did not want to fully trust him. Deuteronomy 6 verses 16 through 18. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You should diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. They were testing the Lord in disobedience by not trusting the Lord, by not obeying his commandments fully. Jesus himself quotes this very verse in Luke 4, 12, where we read, and Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But what is the context there? Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, and Satan is tempting him to do things which are clearly and explicitly contrary to the will and the commandments of God. So the contrast is testing God by disobedience, or testing God by more fully trusting him. The testing in Malachi is testing the Lord in a way that is not a lack of trust, but is greater trust. It's a step of obedient faithfulness, a step of trusting God. 
testing God by availing ourselves of an opportunity to trust God in a greater way, to trust God in a greater way, and to experience his demonstration of faithfulness, not just with money, but with the entirety of our lives. We don't give to get. We give out of obedience. We give out of a heart aligned with the priorities of God and his eternal kingdom. His kingdom, which he takes great pleasure in giving to us. We do this as we yield ourselves to him, as we grow to desire more of him. And as we yield ourselves to him, as we desire more of God, he molds and shapes and remakes us more fully into his image and uses us more and more for his kingdom purposes. And we experience the reality, we know the reality of the blessings of faithful obedience and greater union with him. Trust and stewardship really come down to what do we want? Who are we allowing to mold and shape us? And with finances, God sets the tithe really as the biblical standard. There's no question about it. Our New Testament reading infers that as well from, from 1 Corinthians. But I'm here to tell you, if, if, if you're not at that place of giving yet, I'm here to challenge you, not because the church wants your money, although quite frankly, we operate on the gifts and the, the faithful tithes of the people of this church. We don't do fundraising. God's system, the way God is designed, is that the church is supported by the giving of his faithful people. But it's not about us wanting your money, first and foremost. It's about aligning our hearts with God. If you're not at the place of tithing, I want to challenge you to intentionally move toward that, not... You know, well, maybe five years down the road, we'll think about it, or when I get this raise, we'll think about it. But starting it this year, or coming up with a system that by next year or the following year, you've moved to a full biblical tithe. And I know I said it last week, and I know if you think about it in the natural, it does not make sense, but you will experience this for yourself, that the 90% goes much further than the 100% when we surrender our finances and the entirety of our lives to God. And you will see God's hand. Not that God's going to make you rich. Don't, I'm, not, I'm not a prosperity gospel preacher, and you all know that. But you will see God's hand of provision and blessing. And you will only experience that once you step by faith and test God in that. And you will see God pour out a provision that in that 90% in comparison to the 100% that you could have never imagined. God calls us, not just with money, he calls us to give of our time and our talents. I think we need to ask God, every one of us, God, what are you calling me to be and do to serve you more fully? Right here in this community where you've placed me. What areas of giftedness have you given me that you want to use for your glory? As we come together and we do these things, we see ministry here grow. We see people come to know Jesus both locally, in the region and around the world. Jessica Hughes is sitting back here, our, our home missionary to Uganda. Her ministry is in part a fruit of your faithful giving and service 
here in this church that extends far beyond people we will probably ever meet in person. But as we surrender ourselves to God and we yield ourselves to him more fully, he can do wonderful things beyond what we can ever imagine or dream or ask. And he asked us in faithful obedience to trust him, to look for him, to him, surrender to him, and allow him to prove himself faithful. Next Sunday, we'll be coming together and um, during the offering time, we will bring our pledges for the coming year to the altar as an act of obedience, not so everybody can see what we're doing, but as an act of consecration to the Lord. You have received a um, card in the mail. There are also cards back on the credence table by the sound booth. I'd ask you to make sure you take one of those today if you don't have one or take the one you have at home and pray about it as a family. Pray about it as an individual single person and ask the Lord what he would have you to do and how he would stretch each of us together this year for greater service, both financially, but also in every other way as well. And let us together watch the good and glorious things that he does for the praise of his name. Let us pray. So Father, we give you great thanks. We marvel at your faithfulness, your goodness, the grace and blessing, mercy, blessing and mercy that you have poured into our lives. So Lord, speak to us. Lord, may we grow to love your will. May we grow to love being more fully surrendered to you. May we grow to more fully love you molding and shaping us more and more into your image. So Lord, do that work in us that we could be used for the praise and glory of your name. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.